our Masters of Social Gastronomy. Good evening, my name is Sarah Lohman. I'm a culinary historian and author of the book Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Uh, this year, thank you, super fans. Nice to see you in front. Um, this is my colleague, Jonathan Soma. He is the co-founder of the Brooklyn Brainery and teaches, is the head of the Department of Data Journalism at Columbia University. All kind of. I got it right that Not time. Really. It oh, only took it like two years close. in that job. I'm gonna, let's just say it, that's fairly factual. Um, round of applause, who has been here before? Sweet. And who is here for the very first time? Welcome in the back. See, you gotta get here early. You lost your chance to get the nice tables. Don't worry, this is the splash zone. It's probably a, a good decision anyway. So here's how this is gonna run. So uh, we, we pick a food topic and we're gonna tell you the history and science behind it. Uh, tonight's topic is fake meats, or the more tactical term, a meat analog, something that is designed to substitute meat. And I'm gonna start off by telling you a little bit about the history of vegetarianism. So what that means culturally, why people choose not to eat meat, and then that's what led to some of the earliest meat analogs, which you are going to sample tonight, the earliest meat analog that is still on the market. <laughs> yeah, be intrigued, but maybe not excited. It's so gross. Hey, don't ruin it for she them. She made me cut it up. It Come was, on. It was if you Don't crimes. tell them that, then they're not going to try it's it. It's delicious. <laughs> it's delicious. It seems fascinating. I had to order it off the internet, and anything you can't find at a store is delicious. Um, and then we have a middle section called story time. And story time usually includes like a little something that we couldn't fit into our, our main presentation. What are you talking about at story I time? I cooked so much food that's delicious, except I haven't tried it yet. But I'm sure it's delicious for Smell both good. me and you and our members of the audience. Yeah, we got so a lot of samples tonight. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're sample heavy, yeah. And then, oh, we actually were supposed to have a special guest this evening, Chase Purdy, um, who is working on a book all about like Impossible Burger and that crazy CEO and Beyond Burger, um, but he got pulled away by a family emergency. Um, but he did that while I was in either Las Vegas or New Mexico, I can't even remember now. So I am not gonna tell you more about fake meat, but I'm gonna take a couple minutes to tell you about what I've been doing. I'm working in a new book, and I've been in some pretty crazy locations and situations. So I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes preview of that. Do you talk about Magic Mike? <laughs> that wasn't book research. That was oh. life research. <laughs> I did. I did get to go see Magic Mike live, which is coming to Broadway. No way. Way, way, way. Uh, I don't know if the. I'm also as a hobby very interested in sex laws, so I don't know if the laws will be different, but it. I was just saying to someone backstage, yes. it's shocking in Vegas because you can touch them and they can touch you if you consent to it. Yeah, I touched like a really meaty thigh and butt. <laughs> anyway, I, not in my slideshow, but maybe we'll add something backstage. Um, and then uh, between these, we're going to take a little break so you can get yourself another beer um, and we can do samples, but then you're going to talk to close us out. I just pretend to be Chase and talk about the Impossible Burger, so... Fine. Like we really went down, after Chase couldn't come, we sort of went down like a rabbit hole because he has very recently said some things that have gotten a lot of people upset, the CEO of Impossible. Um, so there's a lot to talk about and a lot to think about with that. Um, this is important. So I'm at four pounds flour. Soma is at danger scarf. You can also just hashtag it OMG MSG. Um, do you want to go to my slides or mine first or yours? Mine are first. Go for it. Sorry, I know you're on a roll, but... Meh. So I'm tired. 
I, you're tired? Just from That's, all that talking. That can't be true. Okay, take a break. So I don't really have anything to talk about is the sad thing. So I was trying to figure out, like, what if I'd done that's about cooking that's not going to spoil everything? And also, I need to show a picture of a cat because that's literally all I do. So this is Abby. Uh, Abby's real fucking old, and he lives in my house, and he just goes around being like, I'm old. And so sometimes he gets bored of the foods he's eating, but he always wants to eat my food. That's why he's on my desk because he wants to eat my food. And I was like, Abby, I'm just going to make you a bunch of food. Put them in little things, freeze it. It's going to be great. I'm like, Abby, you like, like ground beef, right? Like maybe some carrots, some peas. Like you got to mix some other stuff in there or else cats, I don't know. All the cat food always has like sweet potatoes on it. So it, it seems like the thing to do. I think it's just filler. I think cats are true carnivores. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They'll just eat pure meat. Dogs want a carrot, but cats well, are when, like. Well, when they eat, when cats eat mice and things, they usually have like stuff inside the, the mouth. So it's kind of like if you took a, like a tofurkey, but a real turkey, and then you <laughs> shove vegetables inside. Yeah. So that's what they eat when they're out in the world. I gotcha. Um, but it turns out he hates peas, so <laughs> I don't know. He just left all the peas behind, and I thought about sending him to his room, but it's my room, so it wasn't a good idea. Uh, also, I bought these the other day, and by the other day, I mean like two days ago, and these just look like normal pickles. Um, they're billed as a uh, pickled young cucumber whole in soy sauce. And I was like, that sounds pretty good. And you imagine that these are those like tiny gherkin kind of pickly things. And I pull them out and they're huge. They're really long. So creepy. I also I, just noticed that like it's, it's the brand is Queens and it looks a little like the Queen logo. It's the same font as Queen the band. Do you see it? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's, uh, you know, side projects. Got to diversify. So, yeah, it was just creepy. I ate it. It actually tasted pretty good. Uh, and one of my former students on Instagram was like, you use these to make Chinese meatloaf. And oh. I thought, do you just grind up pickles and pretend that they're meat? And she was like, no, you just put the brine with the meat and oh. it becomes a that sounds delicious. meatloaf. I don't know, I guess. Well, future talk about meatloaf. Sure. Uh, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Speaking Bam. of future talks, uh, we're here again, of course, next month. We're here the last Monday of every month. And next month in July, we're going to be talking about the history and science of wine with a special uh, digression into the very exciting rise of rosé. How long will it last? Did you hear there's a competition to rename Roosevelt Island Rosé Island? I hope, Rose I hope Belt it happens. Island. No, it's more offensive. It's Roosevelt Island uh, for the summer, which seems offensive. It makes sense. Makes it's perfect summery. sense. Come on. Yes, it's not even real rosé, so it's it's a vodka promotion to, and it's a competition. You can vote on any one of three Roosevelt memorials. They are I I don't believe in a life after death, but if there's any moment that anyone is rolling in their graves, I think it might be right now. Um, so that's all. Uh, July 29th. You know, who knows? Maybe by then we can all go to Roosevelt Island afterwards. Uh, give me that next slide. I have line. to say that I love doing this talk because when I talk about wine things, last time I did it, there was a man in the audience who was so angry the whole time. <laughs> the whole time he was just staring me down and I thought I was going to die afterwards. So I hung around for a while, didn't get killed on the way out. So 
Here I am. Do you know why he was mad? I don't know. Oh, we didn't have a heckler was, that time. That was weird. I was shit talking a lot of stuff about wine, so. We don't normally get heckled, but he was furious about wine he for some reason. He was a little sassy, yeah. I remember this. Yeah. So um, show up to that. It'll be exciting. <laughs> apparently. Controversial wine subjects. Yeah, go ahead. This is not a burger. Yeah, that's the Beyond Burger, baby. That's a, a lettuce wrap. It is a collard green wrap from Bear Burger. I have been eating a lot of carbs because I was in Vegas this last weekend, so I needed a break. And also, like, this talk has come at kind of an unusual time in that I was, before I was in Vegas, I was in the Navajo Nation. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more during my story time. Um, but while I was there, for the first time in my life, I assisted in slaughtering and butchering a whole animal and then preparing every part of it. And I kind of knew this was going to be a tipping point for me, honestly, going into it, um, that I don't want to eat meat anymore. And it's something, <laughs> thank you. I mean, I figure if there's any room I'm going to say that to, it's probably this one. It's something that I'm going to continue to do for work because in my work as a culinary historian, it's both important for me to be able to experience things, but also when I'm in a situation like I lived in the Navajo Nation for five days, someone hands you a plate of food, being able to say yes to whatever it is they're trying to feed you can be really important to building trust with someone from um, a very different background, culture, community. So within those contexts, I'm going to continue to say yes to me, but like in my day-to-day -day cooking, I don't want to do it. I feel like I'm in a, a place where I can make the choice to not ingest the souls of other animals, which is very Pythagorean, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. So um, I had the Beyond Burger, and um, do you want to talk about like what you thought of the Impossible Burger? No, we not until later, because okay, we'll I talk don't about want it them later. to, like all the stuff I'm going to say, I want them to be held in suspense. That's fair. We very famously tried an Impossible Burger together at the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport, but at a good, like Michael Simon's restaurant, so it's like a decent restaurant, and had an opinion about it. And I will tell you, do you don't? Can I talk about the Beyond Burger? Can I tell you what I, people what I thought? Is that all right? Sure, go, I liked, go nuts. I liked this better. Um, I thought that it was neutral enough to not be offensive, just kind of like observe the flavors around it like a chicken breast. I got Bear Burger's smoke sauce on it, which I thought would add like a meaty grilled flavor, but I found the texture a little, like the texture was like really overcooked meat. It's like very chewy in a way that that good ground beef is not. So I'm from like, I've been sort of mostly vegetarian for a while now, and I'm sort of of the background of like, I don't want to I don't want something to be like meat that's not. I don't want to eat meat because that comes from the inside of an animal. And after being in the inside of an animal, that's gross. <laughs> and it wasn't like sad or upset or sickened at the time. It was just sort of like, yeah, I don't think I want to do this anymore. No judgment for you all out there. No judgment on you, Soma. Just like making a shift in my in my personal lifestyle and personal choices. So this, I would uh, out of five stars, I would give this a fine three stars. But I honestly like Bear Burgers. Like veget they have three like different vegetarian patties, which I think are tastier and more flavorful than the meat analogs. So that's cool. it. Should we go back in time? Yeah. Talk about let's meat do it. analogs. All right, get off the stage. Just every time, people love it. Um, all right, so please welcome to the stage. You left, you went behind the curtain. Okay, please welcome to the stage our first speaker of the night, Sarah Lohman of Four Pounds Flower. I do like that interest music. Thank you. Is it because of my T-shirt? It says here for a good time, not a long time. I'm 37. I think I might have already surpassed. <sighs> but not a long time. 
But as someone pointed out, I'm leaving on Thursday, so maybe I'm just talking about New York. All right, let's talk about fake meat. So this is mostly going to focus on the history of vegetarianism in America and a little bit of England, too. But I wanted to sort of give a nod to the world culture um, that is, has also led into American culture. One of the main reasons that people were vegetarian historically is for uh, religious beliefs. Several of the major world's religions are vegetarian religions. Buddhism is, if you're observant Buddhist, you are vegetarian. Um, Buddhism makes up about 7% of the world's population is Buddhist. Um, however, as uh, a friend from Japan told me, she said in Japan, um, like vegetarian cuisine is associated with very somber occasions. Since it is considered a religious food, it's like what you go eat after a funeral. So she was sort of dazzled when she came here to go to NYU that Americans like ate vegetarian food for fun. It just had a different con context for her in Japan. Um, and also Sikhism is a vegetarian cuisine, a vegetarian religion as well. Um, most Sikhs, um, the Punjab in the north of India is majority Sikh, but they're also one of the world's largest religions. I think they're the eighth biggest um, and are also sort of sworn to a life of uh, vegetarianism. And then you've got sort of like part-time vegetarian cultures like Hinduism. Um, many Hindus choose to be vegetarianism, but it is not a strict part of the religion. Um, and there was also a huge Jewish vegetarian movement in the early 20th century. Because when you look at kosher law, if someone is following kosher, that means that they're vegetarian part of the time. You cannot have meat at every meal. You have to separate your meat and your dairy. And there was a thought in the early 20th century um, that by being vegetarian, you could take kosher to an even more extreme, which sort of brought you closer to God. So there were several vegetarian cookbooks released in like the 19-teens to the 1930s. They were also kosher and released by um, Jewish immigrants as well. So vegetarian can also be a part of different religions too. So this is one of the primary reasons. Um, but other than religion, another major reason that people have not eaten meat over time is economic, too. Um, this is a photo of Little Italy from the turn of the century, the one just over here in Manhattan. And um, one of the big boasts of new Italian immigrants was that in America, you could eat meat several times a week instead of several times a year. For most of the population of the world throughout most of history, eating meat was just not an option. It was a very scarce and expensive commodity. So outside of a few very special occasions, you would have been eating a largely vegetarian diet. And in part, that's part of the motivation that brought many immigrants here, especially at the turn of the century. And meat, buying it and consuming it, became a sign of um, increased stature and uh, economic stability in your new life in America. And it's really that sort of attitude that has led us to the present. It created the factory farm industry, which made meat an inexpensive and abundant commodity for everyone to be able to consume. So we got here for a reason of this desire of America to eat meat and also this idea of um, this egalitarian world where everyone can afford meat. So there's a reason we got to our present condition. These. Um, these two reasons for not eating meat um, have always really been a part of the choice to be vegetarian, um, that economic as well as religious. Um, other things that are cited in historical documents as well as today is health benefits. Um, in fact, just a few hours ago, I was doing a little bit more background reading on this guy, which is one of the first um, people who was not eating meat as an ethical choice. So Pythagoras, 
my dude of the theorem. Um, if you were a student of Pythagoras, you also had to agree to be vegetarian. He cited ethical beliefs, which is another reason that is often cited for choosing a vegetarian diet, um, because he disagreed with the animal sacrifices that were at the time a part of the Greek religion, and he believed that every creature has a soul, humans and animals alike, and that we don't have a right to kill something that has a soul. Uh, he gets a little loopier because he also believed that beans had a soul, he would not allow his followers to eat beans because he believed they contained the, the blueprint of a future plant. And so in the same way, it represented life. Um, however, as far as I know, they also ate grain, so beans were apparently the only seeds that were out. He also, uh, according to documents, particularly hated fava beans. Um, perhaps, my guess is honestly because they were the biggest. <laughs> and oh, and also they had, um, when they started sprouting, they have this hollow tube that goes into the earth, and he believed that the souls of the dead travel up the hollow tube of the fava bay. So you can see some of the basis from modern vegetarian there, and some of it not. So there are, are ethical um, considerations within vegetarian as well, but also, again, while I wanted to get a little more detail on what his belief system was, I came across a website that says, 99% of all illnesses disappear with Pythagorean diet. So there are also this, this idea of health that will come up again and again, especially in the 19th century. Various religious cults believe that vegetarian was a cure-all, but it's certainly a reason that many people choose vegetarianism today um, in terms of something like lowering cholesterol, um, doing it to think about one's health. The, I would say the fifth reason that um, we consider today that is not part of historical vegetarianism is that today many people see um, not eating meat as solving a part of the climate crisis right now and the future state of potential overpopulation, how are we going to feed the world? So there are, are current scientific and political considerations um, in the 21st century when someone decides not to eat meat. Potentially. Take your pick. Choose them all. I don't know. That's your choice. Um, this is a, a write-up of Pythagorean's diet, which came a couple centuries later. Um, this was a, a discourse delivered at Florence in the month of August 1743. So Pythagorean was being studied in terms of his diet uh, for a big part in the 18th century. And that's one of the times in the West that we started talking about vegetarianism as a, a choice in diet. And an early adapter of vegetarianism was my man Ben Franklin here. Um, <laughs> It says, excuse me, sir, are you Benjamin Franklin? It's the Kool-Aid man, and he says, yes, I am. I'm also hot and thirsty. <laughs> so when he was a student in the mid-18th century, he decided to stop eating meat because he thought the money he could save uh, by not purchasing meat, he could buy more books with. And he lasted about three years before then living a life of excess after that point, for which he is better known. But that experiment made him more engaged with uh, the diets of other people, other nations, and sort of open to trying new things too. But again, citing that economic factor too. Meat is expensive, and again, this is more historical than it is contemporary because Impossible Burgers are certainly expensive too. Um, but this was a big choice in what he um, wanted to eat. And later on in life, he's one of the first people in America to write about tofu. He said he, it's in a letter to a friend about another friend living in China. He spells it T-O-W-F-U and describes it as a cheese made from soybeans where they're, gro they're ground into a flour, cooked with water, and then the water is drained out. So he's the first person in America to describe soy tofu 
in writing in a time where we were not eating a lot of soy in this country. Other early adapters are American religious cults, which I would love to write a book about someday. Um, we went through a moment in the early 19th century and then again in the 1970s <laughs> about cults. And uh, in the 18-teens and 1820s, a lot of these idyllic, like utopian cults were starting up, particularly in New England. Um, Louisa May Alcott, her mom and dad founded one of these cults. They were a vegetarian cult in upstate New York. Um, they were, let's see, vegetarian. They also didn't use uh, animals for farm labor, so they didn't have oxen or horses. They did everything themselves. Um, they started in the early spring, and by that fall, they had no food and quit. <laughs> so it was a little bit extreme in their case. Um, there's another one called the Onita cult, and there's another one called the, shoot, I don't remember the name of the last, well, the last one. There were dozens of these. Most of them are vegetarian um, because they believed in the ethical treatment of animals, and some were more successful than others. And most of them uh, celebrated polyamorous marriage. <laughs> they called it, um, not open marriage, they called it uh, con conflicted marriage. I'm gonna, you know what, I'm going to look up the term. I'll tell you it's story time. Uh, but it was a really, oh, I remember, complicated marriage. It's what it was called in the 19th century. So these were like these vegetarian free love cults. Um, and a lot of them based their vegetarian on a closer, uh, they wanted to follow the Bible uh, more closely and look at the same sort of laws that are the basis for kosher law and really follow them to the letter. And again, the easiest way uh, to not make a mistake is just to go the really extreme version and not eat meat at all. Uh, I don't know why, <laughs> I don't think that the complicated marriage was part of the Bible. I think they just like to bang. And you know what? It's the 19th century. Go on with it. I'm proud of you. <laughs> so then we get to Reverend Graham, who did not like to bang. This is totally the other direction. In fact, he believed in abstinence. He believed that nobody should be having sex and that meat was one of the culprits for an overly lustful culture. Um, so if you eat meat, it makes you not only aggressive and violent, but lusty, and these are sins. So he is a reverend in the early 19th century, 1820s, 1830s, and he goes on the lecture circuit and he both totes the importance of not consuming the blood of animals, um, but also he places whole grain at the center of his diet, and the people who follow him later become Gramites, and his particular flour, which is a whole wheat flour, is still used to make a certain cracker today, which is called a... I would be so cruel if I was like, uh, no, it's actually called... No, it is a graham cracker. You're absolutely right. So we still see, although he would be horrified by the fact that graham crackers are covered in spices and sugar to other things he believed were terrible to your health. Grahamites ate whole grains, no meat, fruits and veggies, uh, and cold water, and I don't even think they took hot baths. Uh, again, nothing to excite you. So on one hand, this is extremist. On the other hand, this is really um, the antithesis of what the American diet is at that time. Again, because we are a wealthy culture, we're eating white bread. We're eating a lot of meat. The same sort of issues that are plaguing health today were already set in the 19th century. And so Graham didn't necessarily, didn't recognize whole grain for health reasons. Although, God, I don't know, if you're all stopped up and then suddenly you're eating whole grain and things start moving along, hopefully you're making the connection. Um, he saw it as like a moral thing, like a back 
back to earth, a back to your mother's table. It represented this sort of like good and better culture. He founded Oberlin University in Ohio, very famous, very liberal university. When you attended school there, you had to be vegetarian. And I say very liberal, very famous, because they also had the first black woman graduate in 1862. Yep. So you can see in all these communities, there's like good parts and bad parts. They're like, don't take a hot bath. It will make you want to have sex. But also, let's educate black women. So pros and cons, people. Pros and cons. What's sort of interesting about him is despite his extremist qualities in his diet, his flour and recipes came into mainstream culture. This is a page from like a random mainstream cookbook in the 1880s, and it's a page of recipes for graham gems and cold water gems and mixed gems. These are whole wheat muffins, essentially. So people started, um, were still eating white bread and things that were rich and heavy with butter, but also by the late Victorian era, people were incorporating more whole grain into their diet and directly attributing it to the teachings of Graham. So he actually did have a really positive effect on the diet of the average American. Then we get the heavy hitter of the vegetarian movement, John Harvey Kellogg. So speaking of uh, people who follow uh, vegetarian diets for religious regions, reasons, the Seventh-day Adventists are also another, um, a Protestant Christian group that follow a vegetarian diet. And Kellogg grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist. And the Adventists opened up this health spa in Battle Creek, Michigan, which eventually he was put on the board of, and then he got a little bit more sort of fanatical himself and pushed the Seventh-day Adventists out and took it over renamed it the Battle Creek Sanitarium, or the SAN for short, and by the turn of the 20th century, it was one of the most exclusive and famous health clubs in America. So only the very elite um, politicians, writers, artists were actually going there for their health, but the publications, the products, the news coverage of having these celebrities stay there, that's what really began to change the American diet. Uh, there's the SAN in Battle Creek, Michigan. And his main idea was he wanted to change the American diet. He didn't believe Americans should eat meat. He also abstained from sex. Um, he and his wife adopted about a million children. I don't know the exact number, but give or take. But allegedly never had sex. He always wore this white suit to symbolize purity. So he was building on a lot of the ideas of almost a century earlier, like purity, um, meat makes you violent, meat makes you lustful, and like we can do better as a culture. This is what the average American diet looked like. This is a full British breakfast. The full British breakfast is a very modern day version of what the average Victorian was eating. Or if you had more money, you just kept loading the meats up. This is breakfast over here, which includes kidneys and oysters wrapped in bacon. And lunch has cold chickens, scalloped veal, curried egg, cutlets, cold ham. So you're having meals with two to four meats per meal, really as many as you could afford. And Kellogg thought this was terrible for your health. He was honestly dealing with constipation in his patients a lot because there isn't a whole grain or vegetable to be found um, on, in these meals here. So he um, supported whole grains, supported vegetarianism, was a big fan of enemas too. Um, I did eat this diet for a week on, in an old blog adventure, skipped the enemas, but even without, I was running like an Amtrak train. Like so, not like the New York City subway, so regular. 
And the biggest change he made to the American diet straight up was the introduction of breakfast cereal. How many of you, by a round of applause, woke up this morning and ate at least two different meats for breakfast? That's what I thought. That's Kellogg. How many of you woke up this morning and had a bowl of cereal? Oh my god, what the hell do you people eat? Do you have those daily harvest smoothies? Is that, what, is that what's going on? Yeah, I see you. He rewrote the American diet from being extremely meat and animal product heavy to the introduction of whole grain cereals. Um, on this side is an early advertisement for Kellogg's cornflakes. This one is from 1915. It's actually his brother that commercializes it. John Harvey Kellogg kind of wanted it to stay all within the sand. And then Grape Nuts is actually the earliest commercial breakfast cereal and that was released by the competition, um, the Post family. And you can see that they're using the image of Benjamin Franklin, an early vegetarian, but also a penny saved is a penny earned. Again, emphasizing the economics of eating a vegetarian diet as well. In the 1890s, Kellogg starts developing what I would call the first meat analogs. So here's the difference between what Kellogg is doing and everything before that. Other vegetarian diets before this focused on removing meat from the diet, not replacing it. And Kellogg believed that he much like the CEOs of the meat analogs today, he didn't just want to support vegetarians, he wanted all Americans to stop eating meat. And he believed in order to do that, he needed to provide a replacement. So in the mid-1890s, like 1896, he develops Nuttos, which is actually still sold in Denmark under the name Nuttoline. So next time you're in Denmark, I give it a whirl. Um, and one source said that it was actually USDA that commissioned him to, again, they were already concerned about world hunger problems, to create a healthy meat alternative, but I can't find another reference to this. I have to do a little more research. Nuttoline was uh, ground peanuts, uh, water, and uh, flour that was then steamed to create this loaf, which rather unbelievably, the guy who commissioned it said that it was indistinguishable for meat in flavor and texture. <laughs> which I find hard to believe. Um, his second and probably most famous one was called Protus. Again, this is, um, it's made with nut butter, which is something else that Kellogg popularized. I should take a minute and say that he also, so yeah, any kind of nut butter, we started eating it because of Kellogg. So we have cereal, we have nut, but nut butter. Um, he's also the first one to introduce seaweed into a mainstream American diet. Um, <laughs> someone just wooed for seaweed, sure. <laughs> I'm, yeah, fine. Um, yogurt, too, who's one of the first people to introduce yogurt. People, when you came and ate at the sand, um, he also loved a yogurt enema. No one wooed for that. I don't understand. So produce was all served at the dining room at the sanitarium, but also um, it was av available commercially. This is an ad for canned, uh, and they actually call it vegetable meat. There's a lot of debate right now in terms of what you can call meat and, and not. Um, I made it. Um, it's, they stopped selling it commercially in the 1990s, but it lasted that long. And some people are really upset that it's gone, so there's recipes online. It's um, peanut butter and, oh, I should cut my other product shot at the end. Well, it's peanut butter, seitan, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and like chopped onions and like some mixed herbs and salt. And then you can, you steam it and you can eat it like that, or you can, you can fry it up 
or fry it up like a protein steak. The first time I made it, uh, I made a mistake and made it with peanut butter that had sugar in it, and so that was pretty gross. But then the second time I made it, I made it with like all natural ground unsweetened peanut butter, and it kind of tasted like Thai peanut sauce. So it doesn't taste at all like meat, but again, like I'm more into like a Morningstar Boca burger than I am necessarily an Impossible or Beyond burger. So I was down with it. Um, seitan, by the way, is wheat gluten. It's what's left when you essentially like wash and wash and wash and wash flour with water. Man, and poor seitan in the anti-gluten movement, the like villain of meat analogs nowadays. So much protein, so good for you, as long as you don't have celiacs. Then there are other people who start learn taking Kellogg's lessons and begin making other choices. Um, so this is Uncooked Foods and How to Use Them. This is a cookbook from 1904, and this is the first known cookbook that's both a cookbook and manifesto for the raw food movement. So yeah, raw foodism is almost 120 years old. Um, Usually all of these books include a type of manifesto, and raw food says some of the same things. It, it builds on Kellogg's ideas of eating, um, eating, well no, I take that back. It actually, in, different from being a, from a raw food diet today, you can eat raw seafood and raw beef on this diet. And also crazily, you can you drink raw milk too, which we'll get to why that is nuts in 1904 in the, for, in the first place. Um, but one of these sort of interesting aspects of their manifesto is they say you should go raw because that means women will spend less time in the kitchen. If you don't have to cook food, this removes a major source of labor, which yeah, might sound funny today, but like I said, I've lived these diets, I've recreated these recipes. When you're really cooking three full meals a day, especially in 1904 when we don't have a lot of the convenience foods that we have now, as soon as you're done cooking one meal, you're cooking the next one. It is exhausting, it's laborious. If women could afford it, the first servant they hired was a cook. So the idea of pitching a, a cooking-free diet um, for your family to live by could be very appealing to women. And as the book said, and again, this is 1904, if they're not cooking, then you can do anything else you want to do. Spend time with your family, um, learn, go to college. This is the same reason that we began to adapt TV dinners in the 1950s, because women were looking for an out of home to be able to do other things, whether it's spend time with their family or start careers. Shortly thereafter, in 1910, we get a book called No Animal Food, and No Animal Food is the first vegan cookbook. This one specifically rails against um, animal products because it's coming out in a time when the purity of foods, particularly in cities, is hotly debated. Um, New York's lower, lower East Side had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country in the second half of the 19th century because of unpasteurized and contaminated milk. So this book says, Milk is poison, why would you eat it? Stop it. Like, we don't know where these foods are coming from, so one of the few things that we can guarantee is pure and healthy for you are vegetable items. This originally um, is called No Animal Food. The term vegan is coined in 1944 in England um, as a shortened uh, form of the word vegetarian, or in a way, the word vegetarian with certain letters removed, just like a vegan diet is like vegetarianism with certain foods, foods removed. And this is the first issue of the Vegan Times in 1944, the first print, um, first anything in print where that term is used. A few years later, like 1920s, is when Kellogg and the people at the sand begin really experimenting with soy, looking at things like tofu. And they create um, several meat analogs, one of which is called vegetable scallops. 
Vegetable salads were first produced in the 1930s as a meat analog, a meat replacement, and they are were bought by Worthington Foods, I think like 20 years ago. Um, and Worthington is still one of the world's largest producers of meat analogs today. So I have for you vegetable scallops. <laughs> first created in the 1930s and came out of the company, the Battle Creek Sanitarium, the place that was making some of the first meat analogs in the world. So come on up, get yourself a tasty treat, get yourself a drink, and then we'll be back with more in about 10 minutes. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is a little bit we call story time, and we've got more food for you and for you and for me. For, for everyone. Like, we're a family that all eats food together, and we have, like, a Kellogg's family. So you've been doing a lot of cooking today. What have you been cooking? I, okay. We'll get there. It'll be a slow burn to get to all the things that I cook. But the first thing I cooked, let's be honest, was tofu. Um, okay, so once upon a time, approximately 100 years ago, me and Sarah did a meat analogs talk. Uh, and I talked for a long, 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 long time about tofu, how it's made, how you can make it yourself, etc. So let's just do that again for a hot second before things get exciting. So, okay, uh, tofu is probably like the oldest uh, and most successful meat analog. It's from about 150 BC from China, spread with Buddhism, went all over the place. Um, and as Sarah mentioned before, like it literally is just making cheese, but you start with soy milk instead of uh, actual milk. So everything that was said when it's taofu, yeah? Yeah. Taofu, yeah. It's, yeah. All, it's all absolutely correct. Literally every single step is the same, um, except instead of starting from a cow, you start from these guys, which are soybeans, slightly pixelated soybeans. So when you have soybeans, uh, in, when soybeans are raw, they are toxic, so you need to cook them in order to make them not be toxic because you don't want to die. But basically, you turn them into soy milk, or you can just buy soy milk at the store. It's, <laughs> it's fine. Um, I found a really cool, like, weird, like, grain grinding machine. In, I live in Chinatown, so I see a lot of things. Put, a, put them on Instagram. And then uh, I was told that it wasn't a weird grain grinding thing. It was actually to grind up soybeans in order to turn them into soy milk. And it was like a weird granite thing. It was amazing. It was amazing. But anyway, so here's what you do. Uh, who here has ever made cheese before? I made cheese. Okay, all right, a decent number of people. So you can just fall asleep for the next few minutes because you know literally what's going to happen. So you put the milk into a pot on the stove. You get it kind of warm, about 75 degrees Celsius or so. Um, and then you add a coagulating agent. And so what a coagulating agent does is this magic thing where it looks cloudy and creepy. So it makes proteins clump together. And once those proteins start to clump together, they clump together, they clump together, they clump together until you are left with clumps of protein on one side and then a bunch of other stuff on the other side, a bunch of liquids. And it's the, that protein that is clumped together that you are going to strain out to make either cheese or tofu. So when you're making cheese, you use rennet or non-rennet rennet or lemon juice. But when you're making tofu, uh, you have a lot of options. Um, you can use something called nigari or gypsum salt or epsom salt. It's basically a bunch of stuff that does not come out of the stomach of a calf uh, that you can cause to make these proteins clump together. So also you can use lemons, but who would ever use a lemon in order to make tofu? Because it would just be sour and also it's grainy. Uh, which is gross. So if you use 
nagari. Everything is beautiful and wonderful. Um, it's sweet and firm. If you use gypsum salt, it's mild and a little bit softer, a little bit more tender. And if you use Epsom salt, it is mild and grainy. So Epsom salt is the worst of them all, except for lemon because it makes sour tofu, but that's fine. So years and years ago, when I was thinking about doing this, I, for every MSG, I would just make slightly poisonous foods. And so I, I thought, true. okay, gypsum salt, gypsum stuff, what's the source of gypsum-y stuff that I don't have to like go to a store to buy it? And I thought, well, gypsum board, which is another name for drywall, will probably work the same. And so just to be clear, you made the poison food only for yourself. Only for myself, Not yes. I was for the audience. I, yeah, the time I made wintergreen flavoring out of wart remover was a dream. So, okay, I, at the first location of the brainery, I went into the closet, and then I just scraped a hole in the wall, because I was like, no one will check the hole in the wall. Um, and then I got a bunch of the inside of drywall, which I'm sure is not made out of gypsum. Um, and so I simmered some <laughs> soy milk. I, like, I went to the store, I bought some unflavored silk soy milk. Uh, I, I went back, simmered it, threw the stuff in there, Literally nothing happened. It just kind of sat at the bottom and looked sad, except I couldn't see it because it wasn't separating out. And eventually it's like, okay, I know I can get Epsom salts from like the, uh, the drugstore. So I went to like CVS and I bought some Epsom salts and then it totally worked and it totally made uh, some tofu and it looked like this. And it had like little, <laughs> little bits of drywall in the bottom and it, it tasted disgusting and grainy. But it curdled. That works. Yeah, but it curdled. But Success. it wasn't. But that was only because I added Epsom salt. So right. Yeah, it's it's sad. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this again because we live in the future now. You do. And there's like a, a Japanese grocery store right by my house. So I was like, okay, great. Step one, get some unsweetened so non non silk brand uh, soy milk because last time it kind of tasted also like vanilla and it was a little sweet. It was it was not good. It was not good. Um, and then I actually found nigari at the Japanese grocery store. So it can come as flakes or it can come as liquid. And I definitely could not read the instructions on this. Uh, my two years of, of high school Japanese did not enable me to do anything. Do you know what it is? Uh, it's from the ocean. I, I did see that on the other package. Yeah, yeah, all the packages. Like I was like, okay, if I go to the store and it's not labeled as nigari, it's the thing that has like a picture of a wave on it that I can't read that's in a small right. container. So yeah, made out of something, it's a mystery. It's some sort of salt. Okay, so I threw it in there. I didn't know how much to put in there. If you put too much, it tastes bitter. If you don't put enough, it does not curdle. It started to curdle somewhat. Maybe it's bitter, I don't know because I haven't tasted it yet. Um, so I hung it up to drain and then that's where I left it. Um, before I came here today, I stopped its draining. I actually set like a, a thing of jackfruit on top of it and then let it press for a while. Uh, and then I, I brought it and it's right here and I'm gonna make me and Sarah eat it right now in front Rock of everybody. And Let's try this, I'm gonna get rid of my glass. Good, I left my water out here. Sarah was like, disaster. oh, it looks cool. And I was like, no, no, this is literally just the cheesecloth. Yeah, I was like, oh, tofu skin. I love tofu skin. It's like, nope, that's the cheesecloth. Let's see. Oh, okay. Doesn't look bad. Um, it's like browner than I would expect. Pretty firm. It is pretty firm. It's like withholding some poking. Um, 
Kind of has like a like a strained ricotta texture. All right, you scoop yours and let me scoop mine. Okay. And then we'll do it at the same time. I mean, once he made me do a shot of fish sauce on stage, so I feel like anything is better than that. Oh, that's jackfruit. I'm like, what the hell is that that came out of the middle? What's that red stringy thing? It's jackfruit. It's okay. Okay. Right, cheers. cheers. Tastes like tofu. That's not bad at all. Yeah, it's actually yeah. pretty good. This literally tastes like tofu. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's no drywall on this? No, no drywall. All right, I'm going to um, have a little more of that. No Epsom salts. Yeah, it's fine. Don't fill yourself up um, because after our taste test of homemade tofu. Okay. Who here has ever had jackfruit? Okay, so you might go to somewhere and they're like, we have pulled jackfruit as a thing you can eat. And I was like, great. I have wanted to buy jackfruit all my life. I've seen it. Um, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And every single recipe is like, go buy a can of jackfruit. And I was like, fine. Fine. I'm going to go buy a can of jackfruit. And something I didn't know is that you just told me backstage this is unripe jackfruit. Cause you, I oh, I'll talk about it later. Okay, Shh. okay. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Okay, so <laughs> it comes out of the can. It looks like this. It looks pretty boring. It just looks like artichoke hearts or little slices of white pizza. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just kind of crush it up, and it breaks up into little strands, and then you bake it at 400 degrees for like half an hour. Um, you put a little bit of like spices on it. I was making mine barbecue style, um, like pulled pork, and it just it looks like that. It looks fine. It looks normal. It looks cool. Yep. We're gonna eat some. But okay. here's the thing. I was like, nah, suck it. I'm not just gonna go buy the stuff in a can. Who here's ever seen a jackfruit in real life? Yeah, hell yeah. So jackfruit is baller. It is huge. I didn't that, know I had. Like, I feel like I've seen those, and I just thought they were durian. Yeah, no, so it's like a less spiky version of durian. Okay. So it's like a gentler, kinder, non-offensive durian. Yeah, give it a hug. So if you look on the right of this picture, you see two different cans of jackfruit. So this is something that surprised Sarah. She was like, oh, yeah, you cut it open, it's yellow, blah, blah. And I was like, no, it yeah. is not. I mean, it is, but when you make pulled pork or pulled jackfruit, you make it out of unripe jackfruit. If you have ripe jackfruit, it's just like a fruit, and yeah, it just it's tasty, tastes sweet, it, and it's like not. I will not say, like you can get it cut up at fruit stands in Chinatown usually, and it does have like a little bit of a savory quality to it. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. especially depending on how ripe it is. So when you buy jackfruit, if you are trying to make pulled jackfruit, there's two different kinds you can buy. On the far right, it is jackfruit in syrup. That is your tip-off that this is ripe jackfruit that is sweet. Then they put more sweet stuff with it, because why not? On the left, you have, I mean, it says young green jackfruit on it, but it's either in water or in brine. And that is your tip-off that it is something that you can use in order to make pulled jackfruit. On the far left, you have an actual jackfruit, and it's very green, and it's clearly young, and you can use that to make pulled jackfruit, and it is about the size of one of my cats. <laughs> and I bought the smallest one that was available. Do the spikes hurt? Is it prickly? No, it's not prickly, but it's real fucking hard to break into. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't know how to cut through this. So you're cutting through it, and you're like, pulling it around, you're cutting through, and you're trying to cut like a slice out of it. And the thing that no one tells you is if you look closely at this picture, you see like stuff seeping out of the cut jackfruit. Yeah, like I it's do. kind of a weeping. Yeah, so jackfruit naturally produces latex. That looks uh, so like latex. A, if you're allergic to latex, uh, don't touch it. Um, B, if you're 
trying to use your hands for anything, also don't touch it. I was unaware of this, and my yeah, hands yeah. just got covered in the stickiest substance in the world, and it was just, I couldn't take pictures of it because my hands were too sticky. Uh, and you can kind of see it on the knife, there are little strands sticking yeah. around. It was, it was horrible, um, but eventually I defeated it by using half a container of 90% isopropyl rubbing alcohol, and just like, my hands were still sticky after that, but it's fine. I put it in my Instant Pot, for a while, I pressure cooked it for, well, one batch I pressure cooked for like 15 minutes and then let it sit forever because I was shopping. The other one was like 12 minutes and then I, I quick released it, but they both basically ended up the same. So if you look at this picture, you see there's jackfruit, there's rind, you cut the rind off once it's soft, uh, and those seeds that you see right here, you pick those out because they're kind of hard. You can mm. also eat them. Um, if the sample that I give you has some seeds in it, a, don't choke on them. B, you can eat them. They supposedly taste like pumpkin seeds. Or oh. B, you can just not eat them. I don't know. Choices. It doesn't matter. So it ends up looking like this, and then I put some barbecue sauce on it. So Sarah Lohman, why don't we have a taste test of barbecue jackfruit? I mean, these are the so far the best things you've ever fed me on this stage. Uh, so I'm uh, absolutely open and willing. There's always next month. <laughs> what is next month? Wine? <laughs> oh, God. Prison wine. I mean, <laughs> I've definitely made you eat some wine. Oh, I think that's a nut right there. I'm going to set it aside and then try it in a minute. You don't like it. The texture's a little weird for me. I'm into it. I, I could eat all this. I'm going to have to because that jackfruit is like 400 pounds. Yeah. I guess because it really does look like pork when we were working with it backstage, like it's kind of like cooked pork color. I was expecting something um, that had more of like a fibrous quality. And this is like very, it's soft and fruity in some places, but kind of like dry and stringy in others. Um, that sounds delicious. I think honestly, it's more, because all of the, even when I talked about Beyond Burger, my complaint was textural. So I think part of it is like, I've always appreciated vegetarian food more as a standalone as opposed to something that's trying to replicate the feel of meat. Um, so I think that, honestly, if I, like the next time I've had it, if I just was kind of discarded that expectation of it being like pork, mm -hmm. then I'd probably really enjoy it. I'm going to try this little seed. I'm a, a brisket supremacist when it comes to barbecue, and literally everything else is like, oh, you put sauce on it, it's fine. So you put sauce on it, it's fine. The seed's like a, like a sweet little fruit. It's okay, not like great. crunchy or anything. Yeah, so when you're breaking apart the, uh, the jackfruit, um, there are little areas that are around the seed that seem a little bit slimier than everything else, but it's just like pulled pork in that you have like the fattier bits and the non-fattier bits. It's amazing. So the stuff I'm feeding you is actually not the same thing that me and Sarah are eating. And there's um, lots of vegetable scallops too, yeah. so. I'm giving you the bulk stuff that I cooked in my Instant Pot, so who, who knows how that's gonna be. I'm sure it'll be a dream, because the stuff that we ate is the stuff I put in my toaster oven. Oh. So, yeah, we'll see. So, Sarah, you want to talk about some stuff while I prepare things for everybody? I do want to talk about some stuff. So, I am working on a new book. Um, if you haven't, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you haven't read my first one, it's available anywhere books are sold, and I think even here, too, Inquire at the Bar. We had some copies. They might have sold out. Um, my next book, I'm working with Norton as my publisher, and it's called Endangered Eating, Exploring America's Vanishing Cuisine. And I'm looking at over 300 American food items that are on the verge of extinction. I've picked 10 different items that I think speak to um, different American cultures, and I'm taking actually 12 trips, but really 10 big trips to 10 
10 different regions to dive deep into specific foods and the cultures that they're attached to. Because one of the things I realized as I put together my proposal is that often the reason that certain foods are becoming endangered is because the cultures that you represent are oppressed within America as well. So I have been traveling a a lot. Um, and in May, for three weeks, I was in Hawaii. Um, I was on three different islands of Hawaii. And this is a photo of um, one of the last sugar plantations in Hawaii. Uh, and this one is on the island of Kauai. It's not the last one that closed. The last one that closed closed in December 2016. Um, this one has been abandoned for about 20 years. And rather depressingly, on one of their stored silos, it says it all started here with a rainbow. And it did. Sugar production started in uh, Kauai in the 1830s. Now there is no more sugar production on any of the islands. But sugar cane goes even further back than that. Sugar cane is what was known as a canoe plant. It actually came with the first human beings from Polynesia to, that settled the Hawaiian islands. It was seen as one of the most important plants of the culture. And indigenous Hawaiian sugar cane is not at all what you would expect. Here are four different varieties of it. Right, the colors, the differentiation in them are really magnificent. We've got, this one is actually like a really deep mahogany red. Um, there's this sort of olive one, then there is this pink and yellow striped one, and then this sort of red and yellowish striped one over here too. There are about 32 different varieties of heirloom Hawaiian sugar cane that are simultaneously at risk because there's no more sugar industry, but also for the first time in a long time, indigenous Hawaiians have an opportunity to be able to reclaim their culture. There's a huge DNA project that's going on to figure out what varieties there are, um, Head students are knocking on doors and saying, hey, do you have any cane growing in your property? Because it's really common for someone who is Hawaiian to have a patch of cane that's their own to cut up, to eat, to chew. One of um, the varieties that I kind of particularly fell in love with is olive green here. But this is it in another, at another farm. And it's more often black with charcoal gray stripes. And the name of this type of cane is Wahea Pele. And Pele is the god of the volcano. So it actually looks like cooled lava and has this really distinctive fruity taste. Um, this, is, this is the Wahei Pele when you cut it open. Even when you cut it open, they look really different. And some of them taste fruitier and some of them taste more like molasses. This is the, the juice from a different variety I had that as I took notes in my Instagram stories, it tasted like the smell of shucked corn. Corn and sugarcane are both in the grass family, so it makes sense that it had that connection. So there are research institutions working to preserve this cane. There's um, sort of a campaign to get more indigenous Hawaiians to grow it, to just to keep growing it, then they get preserved. But then also something new is happening in that uh, three distilleries have opened up in the past decade, and they are making rum agricole. Rum agricole up until this point was particular to the island of Martinique in the Caribbean and is a particular type of rum that is made from, fermented from pressed sugarcane juice, not from molasses. The majority of commercial rums are fermented from molasses. So the idea of rum agricole is a natural fit for Hawaii, which is probably the best place in the world to grow sugarcane. And the new distillers that are opening up there are using it as a way to both educate people about the variety of um, heirloom Hawaiian sugarcane and to preserve these varieties.
One distillery is particularly interested in is called Kohana. It's on the big island. It's a bit west of Honolulu. It is open to the public. And when they press sugarcane juice and ferment their rum agricoles, their basic white rum agricole, um, they don't blend the cane juices and they don't blend the ferments. They bottle it and then they label the back of every bottle, not only with the date, but the variety of sugarcane that went in it. And each one of these three bottles tasted distinctly different as well as completely different from any rum you've probably ever tried before. So that was May. I'm very tired uh, <laughs> because basically I was uh, home for two weeks and I just came back, as I mentioned, from the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. And out in that field is a flock of about 70 or 80 Navajo churro sheep. Now, also, so I was really um, sort of entrenched in indigenous Hawaiian culture in Hawaii, but the Navajo Nation is a sovereign nation within the United States. It's in the Four Corners region, but the laws of the United States do not apply there. Um, so I went into the nation to meet the Navajo churro. Um, here's a little lammy. Soup's cute. Um, this is at the Sheep is Life Festival, which takes place in Shiprock, New Mexico, every June. Um, the sheep were introduced by the Spanish over 400 years ago in the United States. And since then, they became such an integral part of Navajo culture that it essentially rewrote the Navajo's perception of their own history. They come in uh, multiple shades of brown, white, black, and gray. They also have different horn structures. You can get like a curvy, almost like wild um, ram looking thing here. But they're most famous for their four-horned variety, where they have two coming out the top and then two coming out the sides, like this guy here. There's even um, like a crazy genetic mutation where they can have six or eight horns, too, popping out their heads. Um, this is the time of year where the churros are moved up into the mountains to the summer shelters. And they went through a horrible drought in the Navajo Nation the past two years. But this year, it's been raining and raining and raining. And this is what they're, those are cows. Those aren't sheep. Because um, fascinatingly, the sheep, they, um, people have to sort of herd them up there, but the sheep know the way. The cows just decide. Like, I spent three days with a shepherd, and the shepherd was like, yeah, I think my cows took off. And I was like, oh, that's too bad. She's like, oh, no, they just went up, they just, they just, they went up to the mountains. They knew it was time. So, like, when things start to hit a certain temperature, the cows, like, just go. And lo and behold, we drove up to the mountains and then had to walk, like, another two miles because the roads were really wet. And I was like, oh, are those your cows? And she's like, yep, there they are. Hey. So the cows take themselves. Um, they're also really renowned for their wool, too. Um, the sheep I saw had mostly just been shorn, but because of a lot of sort of crossbreeding and they were feral, they've got a short, thick coat like a merino, and then they've got this other long, woolly overcoat on top of it. And this is the wool that Navajo blankets are traditionally made out of. Um, this one here is called um, early phase or phase one. So this is like a late 19th century weaving. It was on the Antiques Roadshow and was worth half a million dollars um, that it belonged to this guy's grandparents. Um, and then the other side here, this is like what blankets were looking like in the 1920s and 30s. And the most traditional ones, the wool is not dyed. The sheep themselves come in such a variety of color that you get all of that color uh, variation from one flock of sheep. So as of the 1970s, there were 500 of these animals left because there were two mass exterminations um, supported by the American government throughout history. But now we're in the neighborhood of about 5,000. 
um, and so looking for more ways, for example, mobile slaughterhouses for the Navajo community to have access to more resources to continue to raise these sheep. So um, this is two of 10 trips. Next up, I'm going to Denver for the Slow Foods International Conference. Then I'm going to New Orleans to study Creole cuisine. And then in August, I'm in the Pacific Northwest learning about reef net fishing, an indigenous method for catching salmon. So if you want more of these behind the scene peaks, you should definitely be following me at fourpoundsflower.com. Uh, when I go on these trips, I sort of make an announcement and I do a lot of postings of the things I'm learning. And then this book will be out. Honest to God, who the hell knows? Uh, probably 2020. It's a year of heavy travel and then about six months of uh, pulling it all together. And then, yeah, I'm really excited to share it too. So that's our story time. Get yourself a drink. We'll be back in a couple minutes. All right. Final talk of the evening. How was the uh, jackfruit that I hadn't tasted? All right. So uh, you too can buy a jackfruit the size of a cat. Uh, a fat cat uh, for like, that was like 20 bucks. I think it was two bucks a pound. Or you can just buy it from a can and not have to deal with real sticky hands that make you want to die. Okay, so let's fast forward from historic stuff to the future, which is where we live now, um, in which we have the Impossible Burger. Who here has had an Impossible Burger? Oh boy, okay, who's had a Beyond Burger? Who's had a real burger? Okay, so a lot of people. So when the Impossible Burger came out, it was billed as the burger that bleeds but also isn't made out of an animal. Um, and so it's been super, super successful. And the big thing that I've, well, we'll talk about what I've been battling with. It's fine. So we could also talk about the Beyond Burger, but no one really talks about the Beyond Burger. They're just like, oh, the Impossible Burger was sold out. So this place is stocking the Beyond Burger. So I guess... I'm gonna leave and not eat it, uh, except Sarah who had a Beyond Burger, so go her. Uh, I'll talk about them both later. So <clears throat> even though we could talk about all the kinds of burgers, instead we're just gonna talk about the Impossible Burger, except I, I didn't grow up just eating a bunch of Morningstar Farm stuff, but like at some point in my life, I probably consumed hundreds and hundreds of Morningstar products over the course of like a day. Uh, and then multiply that by like years, and that was just what my life was. Now, veggie burgers, I feel like back then, were pitched differently than they are pitched now. Veggie burgers, historically, if we can call it that, um, were pitched as just like a real healthy thing to do. And P.S., you're not killing any animals. So all the advertising was this nice sweet stuff where there's like a burger and a something laying gently on it and salad all around. You're just like, man, if I eat that, I'm going to live forever. It's going to be great. <laughs> but then the Impossible Burger is like, fuck it, you're going to die anyway. So <laughs> you might as well enjoy life. And you're like, huh, oh, that's, that's an interesting direction that you're going to go with this. Um, and I, I feel like, as Sarah was talking about before, the big pitch behind a lot of the newer era of uh, meat analogs is sustainability. It's the idea that like we're on a path to blow up the planet, so if you want to not blow up the planet, uh, you might as well not eat animals, uh, I guess is the pitch with this one. So if we listen to the powers that be, the EPA, the EPA did a study, and they're like, okay, how much uh, of like uh, emissions in the US every year is caused by livestock? And so they did a study, and they're like, eh, like 3%. And so it's not a terrible, huge amount, 
But then the idea is like, you know, if you could knock that down, it would make life a better place. You know, uh, most of it's people driving around, but if you can, you know, knock it down a bit, it would be fine. But that's just the United States. So the UN uh, did a study in 2005 called uh, Livestock's Long Shadow. And this ended up, there's some drama about it, but it's fine. So the idea was they didn't just look at the US, they looked at the entire world, and they looked at uh, kind of like from nose to tail in the production process of meat. So the animals like eating things, walking around, creating waste, um, being shipped to market, being produced, things like that. And so they came up with the number of about 19% of the emissions of the world come from uh, the livestock industry. And everyone kind of freaked out and there's a lot of cri criticism and then a while later they released a revised version that knocked it down to 15%, but 15% is still pretty big. Um, so eating meat in the world does have a pretty decent impact in terms of uh, emissions, in terms of uh, the land use, in terms of all this stuff. And so Patrick Brown, he spent uh, 25 years as a medical professor at Stanford. And one day he was like on a leave of absence and he's like, you know what, what kind of cool shit can I do? And he's like, okay, here's the kind of cool shit I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna make meat disappear. It's gonna be wonderful. Uh, and so he's like, people have always approached veggie burgers as the idea of this needs to be something healthy. You're kind of meeting the burger in the middle. Um, you're going to like go figure out the best way to combine um, like black beans and uh, sweet potatoes because everyone loves those and you're going to make it a burger and everyone's going to eat it instead of cows. He's like, that's not really a reasonable way to do things. What we should probably do is just make something that's exactly the same as meat but doesn't destroy the world and then people eat that instead. And he's like, science is the way we're going to do this. Um, it's going to be wonderful. Like, fuck the way that everything is all about like a holistic mother nature kind of thing, like babies and grass, babies are fruits. He's like, no, this is not what we're gonna do. Like, we, we are just going full bore on science. Like, we've made a burger, like maybe it's gonna slaughter some babies, but everything is based on science. And I don't care about what we're gonna have to do to get to the goal of making this burger. Uh, it's, in the long run, it's going to be like for the environment, but you're not doing it because you wanna like look at a picture of a salad and think like, oh, that's my burger, it's gonna be so delightful. So uh, the question is, what do you have to do to make a non-meat burger taste like a meat burger? Now, for the longest time, the reason people said that meat tasted great, meat tasted really good, is the idea of umami. It's one of the major flavors. And the idea is that when you have proteins in meat, uh, proteins are made up of a bunch of amino acids, and when proteins are broken apart um, by either like digestion or chewing them or uh, fermentation or any of these things, they release all of these amino acids out into the world. Now, your human body, it could, like, it wants to know if it's eating meat, right? So it can do things like detect if something's uh, sweet or if something is salty or if something is sour. Uh, but this umami flavor is served to say, yes, I'm eating meat or I'm eating something that is a good protein source. And so your body doesn't detect protein, doesn't know how to detect protein. But what it does do is it says, look, we got a bunch of amino acids that were inside of this protein when we started to eat it. What if we just pick one at random and we're like, yeah, if we see this amino acid, that means we're eating something good. We're eating something that is a protein source. 
And so the uh, amino acid that your body picked out of a hat um, is something called glutamic acid. And glutamic acid is the thing that makes Parmesan cheese savory, uh, soy sauce savory, MSG savory, uh, because glutamic acid, the salt version of it is uh, MSG, monosodium glutamate. So the idea is when these things taste good, when they taste rich, when they taste unctuous, uh, that is umami, that is your body being told there is protein here by glutamic acid's presence. Now, when people made burgers, they said, look, all we have to do is up the amount of umami that is in these burgers and then people will love them. So as you saw before, like these are not meat sources, um, things like Parmesan cheese or soy sauce or MSG that can come from kelp. Um, so basically they just tried to shove all of these other non-meat sources of glutamic acid, things like uh, processed yeast is a really good source of glutamic acid. But then Impossible Burgers came along or Impossible Foods and they're like, look, we've discovered this new thing. And okay, a lot of their stuff, I'm just like, did you discover a new thing? And you can't find studies where someone's like, no, this isn't a new thing. This is just, they're bullshitting you. So who really knows, but I'm just gonna drink a little bit of the Kool-Aid so I can give you this science talk. So the thing that they discovered that they say is like the one missing thing that was going into meat that made it taste delicious is something called heme. Um, so if you think of heme, and this is clearly a picture of like a red blood cell rolling through your body, you're like, oh, hemoglobin. And I'm like, uh, not really hemoglobin, but kind of. So hemoglobin uh, transports oxygen around your body. It has four of these heme things inside of it. So definitely, yes, but what we're really talking about here is myoglobin. So myoglobin is a compound that is in meat that makes it red when it is raw, and then it makes it brown when it is cooked. So when you are looking at like a ground beef and there's some weird thing that you think is blood pooling in the bottom of it, it's not, it's just myoglobin rich uh, liquid. So what they said is look, this is the thing, it's kind of metallic tasting, it's the thing that signals to your body that you're eating meat, all we need to do is reproduce this heme inside of meat and then it will be something that everybody wants to eat. But the problem is you can't just pull it out of meat and then put it into a non-meat burger because then it would stop being plant-based. So they went around to a bunch of different plants that had some, uh, some form of heme inside of it um, and they settled on the root of soy, soybean plants. One of the things they looked at was a bacteria called Hell's Gate bacteria. Um, which is from like the bottom of the ocean and it produces this like red heme thing. Um, it's red because it has oxygen in it. So it produces this red heme thing, but unlike the heme that is in steaks that you might cook, uh, because it's something that lives at the bottom of the ocean by like a super hot geothermal vent, it's really good at super hot temperatures. So what would happen is if you use this creepy bacteria from the bottom of the ocean to make a fake meat burger, it would look like raw meat before you cooked it. And then as it cooked, it would just be like, nah, this is pretty normal. So it would just look like a raw meat burger when it was done, which I think sounds fascinating, <laughs> but I don't know if people would buy that. So they're like, look, uh, uh, soybean plants don't live at the bottom of the ocean by super hot vents, so they'll be fine. And supposedly if you cut open the root uh, of one of these plants, it looks like a raw steak, but like the tiniest raw steak ever made. But I couldn't find any pictures of that, so like, and I also don't have any soybean plants lying around, so who knows if it's true. 
But the thing is, they were like, okay, we're going to buy like all the soybean plants that exist in the world. It's going to be wonderful. And then that's apparently really difficult to do. A, they were like, we're going to get them for free because like, what does anyone use these for? It was more difficult than they thought. So they're like, okay, remember our friend science? Let's go lean on that. So what they did was is they took the part of the DNA of uh, this plant that creates the hemoglobin or the, the heme and they put it in some yeast and they're like, hey, yeast, yeast is so good at producing whatever you want it to do. It's like, you're like, oh, hey, yeast, literally any compound that needs to be made, we're going to genetically modify you a little bit, feed you a bunch of sugar, and then you're going to shit out whatever that compound is. <laughs> so for this yeast, they're like, okay, great. Oh, we're going to feed you a bunch of sugar. We're going to genetically engineer you um, with something from this soy plant. You're just going to shit out a bunch of fake blood, basically, uh, which, which sounds terrible, but is apparently delicious. So everyone was like, okay, that's kind of fucked up. Not everybody. Plenty of people were like, this is great. Um, but, but when you're in the world of creating something that's supposedly like a healthy plant alternative food, there's some people who are going to get fired up. And they're like, okay, genetically modified stuff is terrible. And he's like, remember, we're not like holding hands with the earth here. Well, we are, but in the long term, we're just trying to get shit done to make a good burger so that people will eat it instead of, you know, killing a bunch of cows. So what uh, Impossible Foods did is they went to the FDA and they said, FDA, we need you to take this compound and rate it as GRAS, G-R-A-S, generally recognized as safe. And so they basically sent them a letter and it was like, dear the FDA, uh, this compound is a lot like the compound that's in meat, that's heme, so say it's okay. And the FDA was like, mm, maybe not, we don't know enough about it. And so then Impossible Foods was like, okay, mm, maybe we're just going to withdraw our application for grass and we're not going to let you say whether it's generally recognized as safe. But then they did something else. They convened a panel of three experts and they said, hey experts, uh, is this stuff safe? And then those three experts said, yeah, yeah, it's safe. And then they sent that to the FDA because that is how the majority of compounds that are generally recognized as safe are acknowledged by the FDA. The FDA does not analyze anything. Basically, the company either A, does the analysis, which is what Impossible Foods ended up doing uh, later on in like 2012, or they just have a panel of three random people and they're like, hey, FDA, these three random people think that this is generally recognized as safe. And then FDA's like, yeah, sounds good. I hope no one dies. But then, but then, I mean, okay, so they ended up doing a bunch of studies. They fed a bunch of mice, like the equivalent of like a thousand impossible burgers a day in, in heme, and they were fine. They were doing great. But then they're like, okay, we're going to sell the impossible burger in stores. And the FDA was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We actually have a different process for saying whether colors are safe or not. And this heme thing, you said it was purple or red, so that's definitely a food colorant. And they're like, come on, get over it. Uh, I think they're still talking to the FDA about this, but we'll see what the deal is. So the, the big pitch for the Impossible Burger is that it uses a ton less water, uh, generates less greenhouse gases, uses less land, and it uses a lot less cows than actually producing beef. And my favorite thing is in all of the uh, things where you hear Patrick Brown talking about creating the Impossible Burger, he keeps saying that cows are an inefficient production system because it's like, look, it's not about what you're, you're creating in the end, or it is only about what you're creating in the end. It doesn't matter. You're just looking for like a delicious protein thing 
And whether it comes from cows or whether it comes from like a magic laboratory, it doesn't really matter. So it turns out that what is good for the earth, uh, maybe it comes out of like a crazy magic science lab, but additionally, the question is, is it good for you? Because usually, like with the Morningstar thing, when you bought one of those patties, you were buying into like a magic world of eating salad every day. But when you look at an Impossible Burger, it clearly doesn't look like the kind of thing you'd eat if you're eating salad every day. And it's true, because the Impossible Burger inside of it, it has the same fat content as a normal burger, um, about like 13, 14 grams. And it's made uh, mostly with coconut oil, um, because coconut oil is uh, good on, it's solid at room temperature, it melts when it gets a little bit hotter, just like every other kind of meat that is found inside of an animal. Um, but the thing is, they put all this, okay, it doesn't have cholesterol, so it's fine. Now, <laughs> it's true. So, also it's not the 90s, so we don't think fat is bad, but still, maybe you care about that. But here's the thing, I had an Impossible Burger and a Beyond Burger, and I was like, at Bear Burger, and I was like, these don't taste very good. Uh, and then I had another Impossible Burger, and I was like, this doesn't taste any good. And then I had another Impossible Burger, and I was like, this still doesn't taste any good unless I put a bunch of stuff on it. And you're like, Soma, well, how is, how is Burger King rolling this out to like 7,500 restaurants around America? And I'm like, oh, because it is literally, it just tastes like the same. Like, have you ever eaten a Whopper patty by itself? Because that's basically what, to me, an Impossible Burger tastes like. It's not that delicious, but it'll pass. And it's the same way that when you get one of those processed meats, it doesn't, doesn't really taste like meat to me. And so you're like, burger, 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 burger. Uh, did I just call it a burger? Can I call it a burger? Is it really a burger? Well, if you're in the EU, uh, you have to call, yeah, veggie discs. So in April, a committee in the EU said you can't call them uh, burgers anymore. Uh, you have to call them veggie discs, and veggie sausages have to be called tubes, veggie tubes. But the thing is, this was just like a, it wasn't actually like the EU parliament or whatever, it was a uh, like agricultural board that was is now sending it to the rest of the EU Parliament to say yes or no on this. And you're like, of course, they would never say yes to that. That's the craziest shit in the world. Oh, but France already did. So you can't call anything anything in France, basically, if it's made out of meat, except everyone does. Like, if you go to a French website and look up, like, a steak, they're like, here, it's made out of vegetables. And you're like, shouldn't you be fined 300,000 euros? But it's fine. Um, also, if you've ever been to McDonald's French website, you have to get a VPN in order to go on it. Uh, le hamburger, le cheeseburger, le McFish, uh, le boite de eight chicken sticks, and <laughs> lay 20 chicken nuggets. It's a dream. Nothing to, nothing to do with the Impossible Burger, but it's hilarious. And so you're like, okay, look, the, the EU Parliament, weird. France, just going to be France, but we're in America. And I'm like, yeah, we're in America. Missouri did the same thing. And you're like, oh, but it's Missouri. It's like the head of where people make meat. And I'm like, oh, what about Mississippi and South Dakota? And you're like, but, and I'm like, don't say but, because what about all these other states who have also either proposed bills or passed bills limiting what can be called uh, meat-related words? So not necessarily burgers, um, but just they're like, look, we're kind of scared and we need to protect our industry. Um, but the thing is that when you read about it, so in Missouri, um, they have to be labeled as plant-based, veggie, made from plants, lab-grown, lab-created, or grown in a lab. So actually, they're not scared of the Impossible Burger. Um, what the meat industry is scared of is actually lab-grown meat. Because even though it's 
Is it ever going to happen? Who knows? Um, but they are, they are using confusion with huge air quotes around it, around things like the Impossible Burger to create laws that should lab-grown meat become widely available, they can use to kind of shove that into a corner as something that is not uh, actually referred to or able to be referred to as meat or as beef or something like that. Even though it's muscle, muscle tissue, you'll have to go to the store and probably buy something called muscle tissue. And so there's a lot of really good, okay, A, like there's a, a the industry magazine for the people who produce beef, it's like beef.com, I don't know. Like they have a lot of really, really good articles and they give a lot of really absurd quotes when they're being interviewed about this. And my favorite is, for example, there's a product called vegetarian shredded duck. Well, is the duck vegetarian or is it a vegetarian <laughs> product? What is it? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. <laughs> I'm real confused. What's that? <laughs> what is that duck eating? So, so for now, yes, we can eat the Impossible Burger because it is generally recognized as safe, even though it's generally recognized by me as being kind of a shitty product, unless you put a lot of good, delicious things on top of it. Um, I mean, it's not the worst, but like you eat that, then you can take like a 10 minute long shower. It's kind of like a carbon offset for water. Um, and it also passes, I don't know, like it's more of a meat substitute than tofu is a meat substitute. So like, go, go nuts. So, all right, lessons learned, lessons learned. Number one, I do not like the Impossible Burger, but I just spent like 25 minutes talking about it. They say they don't do marketing, but I swear to God, if, if there is not 100 articles about the Impossible Burger literally every single day, I don't know. Marketing works, man. Um, number two, the way that you get things generally recognized as safe by the FDA is insane. Originally, they were supposed to only be able to handle like 800 compounds total. Now there's like 10,000 compounds, and there's like 1,000 of them that they've never even looked at, so it's real exciting. Uh, and if you go to Europe, and you're trying to be a vegetarian, <laughs> veggie tubes are what you're looking for. So that is all we have for you tonight. So I gotta say, I am with you on the Flavor of the Impossible Burger. When we had it at the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport, um, I don't know if any of you all went to public school, but on, <laughs> on Burger Day, and like the burgers were those like thin gray patties that were in water, like a boiled burger. To me, that's what the Impossible Burger tastes like. So it does, in fact, as promised, taste like meat, just like the shittiest meat I have ever no, tasted. No, okay. What about, did you have like a fake McRib, like a rib patty in I high school? Because that was no. the most delicious day, rib day, man. I mean, this that is part of the reason why I'm going vegetarian, because I, I, I find it all kind of disgusting anyway. Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've enjoyed a burger and a chicken, a Le Bois de ate the chicken sticks in my day. Oui. Uh, oui. But I'm, I'm not really, like, sad about, like, missing any of the fleshy animal uh, bits. But, you know, at the same time, Impossible Burger is the, the first non-meat that does taste like a meat. Would you, how do you feel about lab-grown meat? Are you looking forward to it? It's never going to happen. You don't think so? I no, think it's, it's easier to make things that are similar enough to meat that aren't meat. But you don't think that people will pay more for, s for actual meat, but that doesn't have the climate impact? Yeah. It's too far in the future. Like, it's much harder to do that than anything else, I think. Well, I look forward to doing MSG about that when it does happen. And also, there, there was a great study that came out uh, at some point, and they're like, lab-grown meat is going to be more destructive for the environment than traditionally raised meat. 
projecting the shitty way that they make lab-grown meat now by, like, one person, like, poking a Petri dish for a while. It's great. All right, we will see you next month. Yeah, we'll see you for wine next month. Thank you for coming out. <laughs>